0: You know, I, I know it's already been said, but um, we've got to give that band a round of applause. We've got to give them a big clap. Um, I don't know if you teens realise the impact that you have on the kids in our church. A couple of weeks ago, we were driving in the car and Bethany and I were talking about the leadership team of our church. And Charlotte's in the back goes, what's the leadership team? And we were like, well, have a think about it. You know them. You know who they are. So, so who is it? And they go, is it the teenagers? And we said, no, it's not the teenagers. Try to think of some names. And they started thinking, oh, is it Jacob? Like, no. Is it Tanner? No. Maybe Mia? And just started rattling off all the teenagers and said, well, we can't think of anyone else. (laughs) The thing is, and eventually they got there. But when they think who are leaders to them, they look at the teenagers. How cool is that? This morning in the car when we pulled up, it's been a huge week, as you know. And me and Bethany were just sitting in the car. And we were praying just about how today was going to go and, and, and what things were going to look like. And, and we finished praying and then Charlotte said, stop, I want to pray as well. And she prayed for Jacob. And she said, I want to pray that God will make Jacob strong and brave as he steps into the job that Andrew always did. And we were almost crying in the car, but that's the way that the kids see these teens. And they have just done awesome today. Sorry, Jacob, but we're proud of you, mate. And we're proud of all you teens. You've done amazing this week's been one of those weeks that seem to have gone lightning fast and slow motion at the same time. You know what that means? Like it just, it's just a bit disorientating. And but here we are at another Sabbath, and I pray that the things that I say today are the right things to say. It's all the different thoughts that I've had through the week as I've been going back and forth and preparing things and, and meeting with people, just combined into one thing. So hope it's right. I I pray that God's in it. Um, If you would like a Bible this morning, please put your hand up high. Do we have Bibles ready to go, Emily? Yep, so that you can read along in the Scriptures with us. It's good to be part of a church that behaves like a family, don't you think? I felt like, Dean, I'd love to hug you all, but you know, Corona, can't. Got to hold back, but I would. I ask that you bow your head with me as we pray. Father God... Um, like I said, may the words that I have to share this morning be the right things to say. May you be amongst us. May we pull together tight as family. May we be able to worship in the middle of a storm, and may we trust that you are good in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we are the Central Coast Community Church, but we are part of the worldwide Seventh Day Adventist Church. and the name of our church is a long name, right? Compared to some of the other ones out there, it's a long one, and it, if we're honest, it's a weird one, right? It, it, what does Adventist mean? Why, are we, why is this our name? When our church began, it was a group of people, and as the church began to grow into more people, they realized that they needed to organize themselves and get more structured if they were going to continue to grow and impact more people with the Word of God. And one of the things they had to do in order to Grow was to choose a name. Now, a lot of our pioneers pushed back and said, no, we don't want a name. We're a movement. We're not just another church. If we give ourselves a name, we'll just be another denomination in the sea of Christian churches. We don't want to name ourselves anything. We're just going to keep being us and keep going forward. But it was inevitable that as we continued to grow, they said, we needed a name. And we ended up with this one. Who likes that name? Well, it's the one you stuck with. A few of us do. After I share with you some of the alternatives that they were choosing from, I guarantee you'll like this one better. Here they are, the Seventh-day People. That's not too bad. This is all real. I didn't make these up, I promise. Sabbath-keeping Advent Believers. A bit longer. Sabbath-keeping Adventists' Seventh-day Brethren. Advent Sabbath Keepers. Seventh-day Door Shutters. I don't have time to get into the history of that one, but if you want to know about that, you'll have to come to my Sabbath School class after, my interactive class. Um, The Church of God, they almost went with that one, but they were worried it was too presumptuous and we would turn people away, that we were too full of ourselves, that we are the Church of God and no one else is, so we shut that one down. Seven-day evangelists, I kind of like that one. Sabbath-keeping remnant of Adventists. And then this doozy at the end, shut-door seventh-day sabbath and annihilationists. (laughs) That was almost it. Now, the reason there's all these names is because these people who were pushing back against having a name, they said, well, if we have to have a name, we want a name that is core to the things that are important to us. We want our name to be a testament to everyone who hears it, what matters most to us and, and what we believe God has called us to, hence all of these things. And I'm sure now, who likes Seventh-day Adventist now in comparison to some of the others? Yeah, It's good. It's made up of two key ideas. Number one, seventh day, which is we believe that God has called us to be a Sabbath-keeping people, that the Sabbath matters, and he called us back to that because it was a beautiful gift given from God to man, and it's a day that he has called us to come together and worship on. So that's the first part, the seventh day. But then there's the second part, Adventist, and Adventist is a word that a lot of Adventists don't even know what it means. It's just what we say and who we are. It comes from the word Advent, which means the arrival of something significant. So we talk about the advent of television, you know, because it was the arrival of something that changed the world and was really big. And when we use the word advent, we are referring referring to the arrival of Jesus, which we are looking forward to. So we identify as Adventist people because we are people that have the constant and living hope that Jesus is returning. It's not a theory, it's not an idea, it's a belief that Jesus is coming back. So it's right there in our name. That is central to who we are. So because of that, there is a verse that has always been significant to us right from the early days of the gathering of 7 day Adventists, and it's this verse in 1 Thessalonians. You can look it up. I'm going to read it all in a second. But it's a verse where it says, the Lord... Will come down from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the air to be with the Lord forever. Some of you will be familiar with it, some of you are hearing it for the first time, and that 's all right, but we clung to this verse because there was so much truth in it to what we believe, the belief that yes, Jesus is returning, the belief that yes, it will be huge, there will be trumpets, there will be voices, there will be graves opening it 's going to be a significant event the belief that no one goes before anyone else, that the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ all are together to meet Jesus at once. So it's become a huge part of our teaching, this specific passage of Scripture. But long before it was a great proof text for us about what we believe, it was this really beautiful moment between a man of God and his church. Paul had planted this church in Thessalonica, and he had moved on to do other work, but he'd had report back that there'd been tragedy in this community, and the community was grieving because of people that they had loved and lost, and they were struggling to carry on in light of what their community had just suffered. So this is what he wrote to them in light of that. So 1 Thessalonians... You're already there. You've got to wait for me. Sorry, guys. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and starting in verse 13. It says, Brothers and sisters, do not be uninformed about those who what? Sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Never have these words been more applicable to a community than what we are experiencing right now. This is exactly what Paul wrote to, a church community that was grieving who was suffered lost, who was struggling to continue to function, he wrote this to them to say, I don't want you to be uninformed. And he goes on to say, I don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. It's really important to understand that the Bible doesn't call us not to grieve. The Bible doesn't call us not to grieve. It just tells us to grieve with hope. It says don't grieve like anyone else, like the other people. But it says you can still grieve. Grieving is actually incredibly important. The Bible doesn't tell us how long you can grieve for. The Bible doesn't tell us what your grief has to look like to be Christian grief. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. That's up to you personally. And grief is going to manifest itself differently for some than others. For some, this is going to be the first big loss that they've experienced. Some precious people in our church, our kids, our teens, this will be a big thing. For others, it's like we know this is part of life and you might move on faster and that's okay as well. That's totally okay because it's okay to experience in different ways. For others, it's going to trigger some other grief that you've already experienced and that's going to be something that you've then got to face. But the idea here is it's saying, it's okay to grieve. Grief is important. You go through grief, but you do it differently. You do it with hope. Commentating on this part of the Bible, D.M. Martin said this, "'The living and the dead will be reunited and will be together with the Lord forever.'" It is this expectation that makes Christian grief the grief of temporary separation. It is still grief, but it is grief moderated by the anticipation of a certain and joyous return, re, sorry, reunion in Christ. It is still grief, but it is grief that is moderated by hope. The other big idea that's in this passage is that last verse that says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That means that when a Christian community has a loss, we don't grieve as individuals. We grieve together. Regardless of how you personally grieve and how that manifests itself in your life, as a Christian community, we grieve together, we stick together. And with that in mind, there's a few ideas that I want to share, and this is just the things that's been coming to me this week, about the idea and about the concept of church. Thank you, Kalia. I want to talk a bit about the body of Christ. So, again, Paul planted a church in Corinth. It was the most messed up church in the whole New Testament. They just were riddled with all sorts of junk and bad problems and bad people. And one of the things that happened is, you've got to understand, this was a Gentile community. These, their parents grew up worshipping idols, you know, but they'd been called and they loved the message of Jesus. They gathered together, they made a community, they were baptised, and as a result of being baptised, they started to receive these spiritual gifts to do ministry and to serve others. And they didn't know quite how this all worked, and they started to fight with one another about whose gift was more important, whose gift made one more special than the other. And because of their gifting, they did this hierarchy of importance of who is the most important Christian in this church based on what they have to do. Again, Paul got report of this. He's like, oh, I've got to write another letter. So he writes a letter to them to correct them. And this is what he writes. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians 12. And starting in verse 12. It says, just as a body, though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body so it is with Christ for we all for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles slave or free and we are all given the one spirit to drink and so the body is not made up of one part but of many the idea ...being that everyone is important and every gift is important and it all comes together to make a body the head of which is Christ. The idea being that Jesus is the head, we are the presence of Jesus in a community because we are the hands and feet, the body, the, the moving parts. We become the presence of God in a community. But I believe this analogy says something a bit different for us today. It says that we are a body but we've had a huge loss to our body. And Andrew wasn't a toe or a toenail or an earlobe or something like that. He was an arm. He was such a, a massive part of our family. And it's going to take time to recover. It's going to take time to, to be able to function normally. And that's totally okay. I've, um, I've never lost a body part, but I have lost a ponytail. Um... I had long hair my whole life, until I was 26, and then John Lang called to be a pastor in this conference, and he said, one condition, you've got to cut your hair. So I had hair down to my backside, like a big, long plait, and I'd had it my whole life. And so I cut it off. Six years later, I would still go, I'd still move my head to the side when I wound the window up in the car so my hair didn't get stuck out the window. I would still be grabbing my pony- ponytail out of my hoodie, because I was so used to it, and it wasn't there. It took a long time to get used to not having it, to that having it being there and it's not. It's going to take time. And and how you process and move on is totally okay. How you experience this is okay. For some, it might be weeks later where you think, oh, I just need to text something and ask. And then you realise, oh, that's right. I can't. And that's when it's going to hit you. And that's, that's cool. That's all right because it's going to take time. The other thing as well is you guys know I've got this really awful back and it's always doing stuff and taking me out of action but whenever my back goes out other stuff hurts too because the rest of my body has to make up for my bad back so I end up with a crooked neck as well or a a bad hip or a leg or something because the rest of the body has to make up for the part that's failing so we will experience some stuff It will be hard and things might look a bit different for a while but there's one thing that I don't want to hear in this church There's one thing that I don't want to hear said about this situation. It's what I think is one of the most ugliest and dehumanising phrases that's ever been spoken. And it's this, the show must go on. I don't want to hear that because the church is not a show. And that saying comes from a really horrible place. Do you know where that saying originated from? So in the 1800s, when circuses were the, the, the high point of entertainment right? They didn't have the stringent regulations for health and safety that we have now. They didn't have the same kind of harnesses for their trapeze artists and so forth. And that statement meant that if there was any accident during the performance, you carried on. If one of the animals got out, if a lion or a tiger or an elephant escaped, you carried on because it was important to fulfil your role as providing entertainment for for the audience. So that means that you could be performing some sort of acrobatic work and the person who is with you that might be your sister or your brother or your partner and they have an accident you can't stop and see if they're okay you've just got to put yourself as a person to the side and can you continue to be the performer because the show must go on do you understand how it's just it's a disgusting idea that just robs the personhood of someone the church isn't a show do you know what the bible refers to the church as it's definitely not a show the Bible very clearly refers to the church as family. We say it a lot. We talk about the church family, but it's a thoroughly biblical concept. And it's what the Apostle Paul always spoke about when he spoke to his churches. He asked them to behave like family. So there's a number of texts we're going to look at. It's just a bin. It's the bin fell over. It's going to be okay over there. Don't, don't worry. There's a number of texts we're going to start in Galatians chapter 10, page 799, if you have one of our Bibles. Galatians 6 and verse 10. And it says this, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So it says, do good to who? Everybody, but especially who? Especially your church family. Now, we get this one muddled up a lot of the time. We sort of Disregard each other in our effort to go and help everyone else. But the Bible command is, it said, do good to everyone, but especially your brothers and sisters in your congregation. Do good to them more than anyone else. We're supposed to model a community that other people want to join and be a part of. They don't want to see us not treating each other well, but treating everyone else good. The, The idea is that treat everyone well, but especially your family, your faith family. Another verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Page 815, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. And this is Paul saying, and he's writing to Timothy, he's giving him instructions about how church should operate. And he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these instructions... So that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. He's referring to the church community as God's household. Another word for household is... Come on. Family. We, we mess this one up real bad. In the King James Version, it just says God's house. And they use this verse as a long time to say... You shouldn't fall asleep in church and you shouldn't be eating in church and you shouldn't come to church dressed like that, you know, because they thought that God's house meant the church building. Didn't realize that there was no church building for 300 years after this was written. This is talking about how we behave in community, in God's household. He's saying, this is how you ought to believe, with love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, you behave like this because this is your family. And then in 1 Timothy as well, chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2. And he makes it really clear to Timothy here what he expects. This is what I expect if you're going to take this family idea seriously. Verse 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, you've got to understand at the time when this was written, family values were far more significant than they are now. Like, Like... you did everything possible to avoid bringing shame to your family and to honour your family. Families lived together, they worked together, they loved one another. Family businesses were the norm that would just continue to carry on through generations. So when Paul is writing to the church saying, behave like a family, he's saying it's a, it's a high calling that he's asking them to come into. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ like you would treat your own family members. Behave like family. Churches would meet together in their homes, and worship was really simple back then. They would read some of the words from the apostles. Someone would get up and say, basically, the things that you've heard today, do that in your life. (laughs) Like, just make sure you're doing all that stuff that we just read. That was the sermon, and then everyone would stand up together and pray, and then they would have a meal together, and the meal was considered just as much a part of worship as the teaching and as the reading, and as the praying. That's a cool idea. So I know Corona's stepping us back a bit with our lunch, but we've still got lunch today, that's right. We're just having sandwiches or something like that, but eating together is as much a part of worship as anything else was. They met in homes. We might have to do that, see how bad this thing gets, but they met in homes. And when the home got too small because the church grew, guess what they did? They took up an offering, and they built an extension on that home. Council was a lot less like, concerned about that back in those days. It was easier and the, and the home grew. And this is what church was like for 300 years until there was a church first church building. This is how they operated. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, one of my favourites. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What it meant to be a follower of Jesus in this community was to devote yourself to those four things. The teachings of the apostles, to being with one another, to fellowship, to that family idea, eating together and praying together. That's what it meant to be a believer at that time. Somehow, we changed it. And and I, I think in a way we kind of mucked things up a bit over time. And by the 1500s, we ended up with these... Has anyone ever seen these before? These are called box pews. And they were popular in England in the 1500s. And the idea is that you would come into church and you would, each family would own their own box. And they had a key for it that would lock so that no one else could get into your box. And if you were wealthy, your box was bigger and more elaborately decorated. If you were very wealthy, it had a fireplace in it and a kennel for your dog. And the idea was to give people the opportunity to have a private worship experience, that they would be able to come in and lock themselves inside their little box and not have to see anybody except for the the preacher, who they could just see above the wall of their box. Um, Thankfully, we don't have these anymore, because this seems not like church at all. This is much more like the idea of a show, this was the, the idea that there is people who are not participating, they are listening. They are watching and someone is telling them and it is certainly not family. Now, I'm not one of those guys who says that we need to go back to the way of the early church because times have changed. I'm not saying we go back to only house churches and no instruments. and no, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that there are some things that are core to the heart of what it means to be church. And they're the things that you have to cling to most, particularly when you feel like things are being ripped apart. The things that are the core, the things that are the heart. I've got no problem with Big Camp. I think it's awesome. Bethany loves colour. Hillsong Conference is cool. That's great. But that's not the heart of what it means to be a believer. The heart of what it means to be a Christian is to fellowship, is to be a family, is to eat together, is to... Follow the teachings of the apostles and to pray with one another. That's what it means to be family. When I was at college, one of my lecturers told us, never be too open with your congregation, particularly if you've had a bad week. Don't tell them. Never tell them if you haven't had a lot of time to prepare your sermon. Just act really confident because you you need to make them feel like they're getting their money's worth from their tithe. They pay tithe, they expect good sermons. That's what a lecturer told me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mate, but you don't pay your tithe to me, you pay your tithe to God, and God distributes it how he sees fit. That's the way the model works, just to be clear, okay? I thought I, it was it was a it was a horrible idea because it makes the preacher unhuman. It makes them the performer and you guys the audience. That is not family. This mentality would rip Paul's heart apart who did so much to establish these communities that loved and served one another and were good to one another and kind to one another and makes it about the show. I didn't get to tell you guys this because I was going to share with you um, at Heads Up a few weeks ago. But um, the week after Next, and I'm really sorry, Megan, (laughs) because she was uh, one of the organisers. I was booked to do Festival of Faith at college and that was a really big deal to be the speaker for Festival of Faith at Avondale College, honoured to be asked, Um, particularly with the stuff that I was allowed to preach about, I was really excited about that too and it's a big deal, I remember my time at college that the speakers who would come to Festival of Faith was like your Sam Lenores and Herb Larsons and all these guys and for me to be asked I was like incredibly humbled, very nervous but also excited. but then the last few weeks happened and Brock, who you know, Brock Goodall, who's the chaplain of college now, he gave me a call a couple of days ago, just after he'd gotten back from America and he said, how are you going? And I said, oh, average. He said, yeah. Um, well, look, I want to give you total freedom to pull out a festival of faith um, because you are far more important to me than a program. He said, programs come and go, weeks come and go and it's more important that you're okay because I know that you're carrying a lot and you'll probably crash out after things are done. And he said, you're more important, so we're just going to cover it and that'll be okay. I'll tell you what, I nearly burst into tears. I felt really guilty at the same time because it's such a big thing. But like, that, is the, that is the highlight of his job, basically, is that twice a year he gets to do Festival of Faith and that's when everyone sees what's going on spiritually on campus. And he said, forget the program. People are more important than programs And we need to make sure that you're okay. And for me, that was family. That was church. That was what it looks like to be family and to be church in these sorts of circumstances. So there's this verse that I want to share with you. It's the last verse we'll look at today. Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm calling you church to be kind to one another. Be compassionate with one another. People might drop the ball over the coming weeks. Someone might just be having a terrible morning and just being really overwhelmed and forget to bring the corn chips. And guess what? We're just going to have salad and bean mix that day. It'll be okay because we're still together. It doesn't matter. It's going to be all right. You might get up in the morning and you might struggle to get out of bed because you're feeling like garbage and you haven't had a shower and you haven't brushed your teeth and your clothes aren't ironed and you just look horrendous. We'll still take you. We still want you with us. That's okay because we're a family. We're not going to judge you and say that you can't come to us because you look like crap. That's all right. We want you here because you are part of our family. If you are supposed to take an interactive class and you can't do it one morning because in three weeks' time this just all hits you and brings something up and you are hurting, we'll hang out and talk for that week because we are a family and that's okay. I'm calling you to kindness. I'm calling you to compassion for one another as we move through what's ahead. You with me? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And in everything, we know that you deeply love us. Father God, we, I want to thank you that this church already behaves more like a family than just about any church I've ever been a part of. But help us to lean into that, Lord. Help us to lean into mercy and love and kindness and connection and togetherness. Even if the corona pushes us apart, Lord, may your love bind us together. Father God, we pray for a healing that can only come from you. We pray for a strength that can only come from you. And we pray that even in a period of grieving, we can still be a light to this community that shines the goodness and mercy and love of a real living God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.